This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. I'd like to welcome everyone uh, today to our ongoing Brown Bag Lunch series that we've been doing um, periodically on intellectual property and technology issues. And um, really pleased to introduce our speaker today, Professor Daniel Lyons, who's a professor of law at Boston College Law School down the block. And Daniel is a graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Law School, apparently likes Boston. Um, but then he did leave to go to Los Angeles to clerk for the Ninth Circuit and practice law there for a while, but then had the good sense of coming back to Boston. Um, what he's going to talk about today in his copies of his article uh, there, which, are, which have come out of the Notre Dame Law Review, and it's kind of an interesting topic. It deals with net neutrality and whether or not someone could argue, you know, it's a virtual taking if the government requires net neutrality. So interesting argument. And I will turn it over to Daniel, who will talk about 20, 30 minutes, and then I assume open it up for questions. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Andy. I appreciate the uh, invitation to come and speak. I'm always grateful for the opportunity to share my ideas with a larger crowd. As Andy indicated, I'm here today to talk about net neutrality and specifically about the limits that the Fifth Amendment places on the FCC's ability to regulate broadband internet providers, such as Verizon and Comcast. Um, but I want to start with an analogy. And the analogy is to Costco, the sort of membership-based warehouse uh, retailer. I have three kids at home, and Costco has been incredibly invaluable to our family. Uh, in particular, I love the idea that I can buy Pampers in bulk there. Pampers really are the best kind of diaper. It's not just marketing, they really are the best. And when I moved here to the Commonwealth, I was surprised to find that the Costcos here don't carry Pampers. Uh, for whatever reason, the folks in charge of marketing here have decided that their shelf space is best spent um, with other items. So as a consumer, I'm a little bit upset that I, you know, I can't get the Pampers bulk rate. If I want bulk rate diapers, I have to buy Huggies. If I want Pampers, I have to go to another retailer. But so the V. Now, imagine that there's a regulation, new regulation from the Commonwealth, that requires Costco to give shelf space to any and all vendors that wish to market, market their goods through the Costco network. Imagine further that this regulation states that Costco must give shelf space to any comer at least as good as the shelf space that it dedicates to its own private label goods. And then finally, imagine that Costco is prohibited from charging the vendor any premium, any uh, rate for premium shelf space, the kind of trade spin that normally exists in a retail industry. And furthermore, they can't make any money off the sale of these third-party vendors' products. Their revenue streams are going to be limited to the membership fee they collect from customers and whatever profit they make off their private label goods that are being sold side-by-side -side in the warehouse of everybody else's stuff. Now, Costco would complain, and rightfully so, that this is a substantial interference with their business. And in fact, to the extent that the regulation requires Costco to allow third parties access to their shelf space without their approval, they might claim that it's a taking in the form of a forced physical invasion of private property by a third party without the owner's approval. And then Costco may very well be right. Now, the analogy is not perfect, but it provides a good overview of what net neutrality restrictions do to network providers, broadband internet providers like Verizon or Comcast or AT&T. I want to dedicate the first half of this talk to sort of discussing what net neutrality is. 
I want to give a gloss to the policy arguments, the strongest ones for and against net neutrality. Uh, and hopefully we can get into a little more of that during the Q&A period. But then I want to dedicate the second half of this talk to my own niche argument. Whether net neutrality is good or bad as a policy matter, the regulations allow content and application providers to push information through broadband providers' networks to end users. And they do so in a way that allows the owner of those networks no control over who's using their networks or to what end. It's not a stretch, I argue, uh, to suggest that this forced physical invasion of broadband networks by content providers such as Google affects uh, uh, taking under the court's Fifth Amendment jurisprudence and therefore requires just compensation. At the very least, it raises a serious constitutional question uh, that suggests the FCC should reconsider its current plan to impose net neutrality restrictions without an explicit mandate from Congress because courts are unlikely to uphold uh, the regulation against a constitutional challenge. So let's step back for a minute and uh, ask, this is really loud, I'm sorry. Uh, ask what is net neutrality? And so the, uh, subject to a number of shifting definitions, I think to mix metaphors a little bit, we'll go with the preferred analogy of uh, FCC Chairman Julius Janikowski, who says that net neutrality is about regulating what he calls the on-ramp to the Internet. Uh, at the risk of uh, insulting you, the Internet is, as you know, a group of interconnected computers. Uh, and those of us in, uh, end users have machines at home. We need to connect them to the Internet somehow. The way in which we do that is to use the wires that are provided by private broadband providers, companies like Verizon, uh, AT&T, or Comcast, that own the wires that run from your computer at home to the internet. And they charge for access to that uh, through a product known as broadband internet access. Now, Larry Lessig and others have long been concerned about the fact that a handful of companies control this sort of vital choke point between consumers and the internet. They're concerned that unfettered control of access to the network gives these companies far too much control over the flow of information in society. Now, currently, network providers don't uh, charge content and access providers for access, in the sense that when you download a clip from YouTube, uh, you're obviously paying for your broadband internet access, but YouTube doesn't have to pay Verizon for the right to send their clip uh, through the broadband pipes to your house. But if they started doing so, Lessig argues, it could retard the development that made the Internet so great. Well, Lessig has this uh, very romantic view of the, um, the way in which the Internet developed. And part of the beauty of it is that the best Internet innovations, things like Google and eBay and Amazon, they weren't born in the labs of well-funded Fortune 500 companies. They were instead built by guys in their garages who were aided by the fact that all you had to do was write a program, put it on a public server, and plug it into the internet, and suddenly everybody could get your stuff. Lessig and others are concerned, and perhaps rightfully so, that a model that allows broadband providers to charge for sending information to end-user consumers could inhibit that development going forward by creating a pay-for-play pay model so that only well-funded ideas can get out over the internet in the future. Now, Chris, you and others oppose this idea, primarily on policy grounds. Uh, they argue, uh, they point out that broadband access isn't free. 
Right? It involves literally billions of dollars of private investment made by companies like Verizon in fiber optic cable running all over the country. Now, these companies are recovering that money not just by selling uh, broadband internet access to consumers. They could never charge enough for broadband access to cover the whole cost of those fiber optics. But they do so also by selling additional premium services that fiber optic cable makes available, things like uh, Fios television service or um, video conferencing, video chat, things like that. One problem with this model, though, is that there's only so much information that broadband providers can carry at a time. When a network gets congested, uh, there's more data uh, sent through the pipe than the pipe can handle at any one time. Verizon argues that it ought to be able to prioritize its own content over third-party content on the theory that our customers are paying for Fios television service, and therefore we have a duty to make sure that it's uninterrupted, if at all possible, and more of a duty than uh, we have to make sure that YouTube gets through, for example. In addition, they argue, we want the ability to sell premium access to content providers that are willing to pay to do so. Uh, and the model that they have in mind is something like the post office. When you show up to the post office, anybody can send a letter through first-class mail. Those people who need things to get there faster, who need priority, can pay extra to get priority delivery or express mail delivery. And if the, if the content provider is willing to pay for that priority access, if they have some sort of economic reason uh, to risk their capital in making sure they get priority in the event of network congestion, then Verizon suggests that they ought to be able to do so. Now, this is a debate that played out largely in law review articles, and nobody else really paid much attention to it. And until about 2005, when the FCC stepped in and issued what became known as its Four Freedom Statement, uh, they promulgated a list of non-binding consumer rights and suggest consumers ought to be entitled to the lawful Internet content of their choice, lawful Internet applications of their choice, they ought to be able to plug in any device of their choice to the Internet and make it work. And they're entitled to um, competition among broadband providers, content providers, and application providers. Now, the FCC recognized that its jurisdiction over the Internet is very limited. And therefore, these duties were non-binding. It was just sort of a suggested list. Uh, on the theory, eventually, we may wind up regulating the Internet, so those of you who are involved in this developing Internet ecosystem should keep these principles in mind when deciding your own company policies. Now, fast forward two years. Comcast Corporation gets in trouble for degrading the traffic between uh, BitTorrent users. BitTorrent is a peer-to-peer -peer, uh, application system, networking system. Basically, what's going on here is... Um, Network capacity is shared on a neighborhood basis, which means that your house and those of your neighbors are all basically sharing the same pipe into uh, Comcast headquarters. So if your neighbor winds up using an enormous amount of bandwidth, uploading and downloading lots of stuff, it could affect your ability to use uh, your broadband connection. Now, normally this isn't a problem. Uh, for typical consumers, people are just looking at web pages, downloading email, even streaming video. There's enough capacity in your neighborhood for a lot of people to do that simultaneously. But BitTorrent users aren't typical consumers. BitTorrent users turn their machines into basically mini-servers, so they're uploading and downloading massive amounts of content simultaneously. And Comcast argued that 
uh, if you had a BitTorrent user in your neighborhood, it was going to make it a lot harder for everybody else in your neighborhood to get decent internet access. And so they wanted to be able to identify and throttle the traffic of BitTorrent users so that everybody else in the neighborhood uh, were not, was not adversely affected. The problem is it was a big PR problem for them because they weren't above board in how they did it. First of all, they denied that they were um, throttling any traffic whatsoever because they didn't want to admit they had a problem. Then when the press showed them evidence, they said, okay, yeah, I guess we were throttling BitTorrent users. And the way they were doing it was basically, if you have two <coughs> machines that are talking to each other, Comcast wasn't stepping in and throttling back. They weren't coming in and saying, we're Comcast, we're going to stop this. What they were doing was they were forging packets pretending to be, that to each machine pretending to be from the other machine, saying basically, never mind, we don't really want that. So it was all very, um, uh, it, it seemed like Comcast was doing everything possible to hide what they were doing from the public, and that got the FCC mad. Uh, so the FCC stepped in, and in an adjudicatory proceeding, they said for the first time that broadband providers are subject to reasonable network management. They didn't define what that is, but whatever it was, Comcast violated it, and Comcast was sanctioned for it. Now, Comcast took an appeal where the primary question in the D.C. Circuit was whether the FCC had jurisdiction to regulate the network management practices of broadband providers. And the FCC admitted that broadband is outside its jurisdictional core. The Communications Act gives the FCC the ability to regulate broadcasters and cable providers and telephone companies. Uh, and that's about it. Nonetheless, they argued they had jurisdiction under Title I to regulate broadband. Title I is kind of like a necessary and proper clause for the FCC. It allows the FCC to regulate other things that aren't broadcasting, cable, or telephone service. As long as, one, the service in question is communication by wire or radio. And two, uh, the need to regulate this service is uh, necessary in order to regulate one of the three things that they're uh, mandated to regulate, broadband, cable, or telephone service. So they argue that um, video service, some, video sometimes goes over the internet and phone calls sometimes go over the internet. And so we need to regulate the internet in order to be able to reach telephone and video service from the internet. The DC Circuit didn't buy that argument and struck them down. Now, while this appeal was ongoing, the FCC promulgated some proposed rules that would have imposed net neutrality restrictions on broadband providers generally. Despite the setback of the DC Circuit's Comcast decision, uh, the FCC approved those rules in December, again, relying on its Title I authority, and we'll see how well it fares the second time around. They're either hoping that the, the D.C. Circuit changes its mind or that they find another circuit that's more amenable uh, when these particular rules get appealed. Now, in essence, these rules codify those four freedoms that I talked about a little bit earlier. They re reiterate that end users are entitled to lawful content and applications of their choice, devices, and uh, policy of mandating competition in the Internet ecosystem. To enforce these rules, the new regulations imposed a duty on wireline broadband providers, companies that provide internet service over a wire, uh, Verizon, Comcast, anybody who's not uh, sending things over your cell phone, that these providers cannot block any lawful content or applications, and they cannot unreasonably discriminate when transmitting lawful content and applications over the network. Moreover, the rules very strongly suggest that broadband providers can't grant preferential treatment to their own stuff or to any third-party company that's willing to pay for priority access. 
The idea is that to the extent feasible, all data is treated the same, whether it be emails, web page content, VoIP calls to 911, or YouTube clips of the dramatic chipmunk. All of them get the same level of access, and all of them are subject to the same type of degradation in the event of network congestion. The rules also impose a duty on broadband providers to disclose information to the public about their network management practices, and I don't think anybody cares about that, or I don't think anybody is concerned about that requirement, I should say. So although Chairman Jenikowski spends a lot of time talking about regulating the on-ramp to the Internet, it's probably more accurate to say that net neutrality regulates the off-ramp to the Internet. Nobody, uh, everybody seems to understand that Verizon can charge different rates, tiered service to consumers. I can pay $40 a month for a basic uh, package that allows me to surf the web and stream. And if I'm a gamer or something like that, I can pay $60 a month for a uh, more a higher speed connection, things like that. Nobody seems to have a problem with that. Uh, so the on-ramp part's not anything anybody's concerned about. What net neutrality is talking about is regulating the off-ramp, the flow of information from internet content and application providers to you, the consumer. And the rules effectively eliminate the ability for broadband providers uh, to, to engage in tiered service charging different rates to people who are interested in more, prior, more or less priority, or to favor one's own content over those of others. And there's good policy arguments on both sides of the net neutrality debate. And it's occasionally taken on a constitutional dimension as well, uh, mostly involving the First Amendment. Uh, net neutrality proponents argue that rules are necessary to stop Verizon or Comcast from engaging in private censorship. For example, by preventing you from going to the website, www.verizonsucks.com. Um, while opponents argue that net neutrality rules are themselves a restriction on broadband providers' own speech rights and the right to engage in editorial control over what goes out over their network. Um, I want to bracket that argument and instead focus on uh, an under-examined aspect of the debate, the takings clause. Now, we're all... Uh, fairly familiar with the, the Fifth Amendment's command that private property should not be taken uh, for public use without just compensation. And the spotlight recently, in recent years, has been on the eminent domain aspect of that. When can government take title and when can't they for things that are a public use? But if you reach back into the deep recesses of your brain and access those memories of 1L property right there next to that thing about fee simple determinables and possibilities of reverter, you'll get uh, the regulatory takings doctrine. Since the 1920s, the Supreme Court has said that regulation that goes too far can affect a taking even if the owner keeps title to the property. Now, to say that the, the court's regulatory takings jurisprudence is a mess is to be charitable. Usually, regulatory takings cases are governed by a very squishy uh, three-part balancing test known as the Penn Central Test where the court weighs the nature of the government's interest against the economic impact of the regulation on the plaintiff and the interference with the plaintiff's reasonable investment-backed expectations. And generally, what does all that mean? The court goes like this, and then the government wins every time. <laughs> um, the test is necessarily and consciously ad hoc, uh, and purposely so. It's to give courts maximum flexibility to make sure that uh, the government can regulate uh, use of property in a way that is necessary while safeguarding at least minimal property rights that owners have in maintaining the status quo. But there are a few carve-outs from this mushy Penn Central test. 
if you fit in one of those categories, the regulation is a per se taking without having to go through the Penn Central calculus. And the most prominent of these is when the regulation affects a permanent physical invasion of property by the government or by a third party. This rule originated in a case called Loretto v. Teleprompter Manhattan. Uh, Loretto involved a regulation by the city of New York or the state of New York requiring landlords to grant the cable company access to their buildings to install whatever equipment is necessary so that tenants can get cable television. There's a great public choice story as to why New York passed this law. Uh, we can get into that in Q&A if you want to. Uh, Loretto was a landlord in Manhattan and challenged the taking, uh, challenged the regulation as a taking of her property. She said, if the cable company gets to go on my roof without my permission and put a box there uh, and leave it there and run a line down the side of my building, that is a taking of my property. And the court agreed. It didn't matter, the court said, that the box was very small. It didn't matter the landlord could use the rest of the building. The fact that the regulation is an infringement on the right to exclude others from her property, which the court said was uh, one of the most fundamental sticks in the bundle of property rights. And it's also an interference with her use rights, the court said. As long as the cable box is up there on that corner of the building, she can't use it herself, at least that corner. And the court revisited this notion a few years later in a case called Nolan. No one involved the owner of a uh, beachfront bungalow property in uh, California who wanted to demolish their little bungalow and put up a larger building, a larger and two-story house. In order to do that, they needed permission from a group called the California Coastal Commission. The California Coastal Commission said, we'll grant you your building permit on the condition that you allow the public an easement across your private beach from one side to the other. The Coastal Commission was trying to stitch together enough private easements to get a public walkway along the entire beachfront. Uh, and the court mentioned that if the Coastal Commission had simply come along, knocked on the Nolans' door uh, one day, and said, we are hereby imposing this easement from one side of your property to the other, it would clearly be a permanent physical invasion of property, and therefore a taking under Loretto. It doesn't matter, the court said, that there is one individual who plops himself down on the easement and stays there. The fact that the public generally has an access right would be enough to make it a permanent physical invasion under Loretto. Now, I argue that net neutrality constitutes a per se taking under Loretto and under Nolan. In essence, the rules are granting content and application providers a virtual easement over the networks of private broadband providers. Anytime a content or application provider wishes to send information over, for example, the Verizon network to a Verizon end user, Verizon must allow it to do so. The effect of net neutrality, indeed the, the purpose of net neutrality, is to eliminate Verizon's right to exclude third-party content from its network. Unless Verizon exits the internet business completely, it must allow any and all lawful internet content and applications to use its network to reach consumers, and it cannot charge them for doing so. In the Supreme Court's parlance, the rule converts content and application providers from mere commercial lessees to interlopers with a government license. Moreover, when third parties use some of the bandwidth over their network, that prevents Verizon from using that bandwidth for its own content, its own file service, or things like that. And at a base level, right, broadband providers cannot use for their own purposes any space in the pipe that some third party has already used. 
normally Verizon sends its own signals over the network if the effect is to crowd out or degrade third-party content. In the event of network congestion, the rules strongly suggest that the pain must be felt by all parties equally, uh, or at least equally across all types of traffic. So one might object this is a misuse of Loretto. That the per se taking doctrine really only applies to real property, not to sort of physical, uh, tangible chattels. Or in other words, wires are different from buildings and, and beachfront backyards. But the Supreme Court has said in passing that Loretto is not limited to real property. And the circuit courts have uniformly held this as well. There's a case in the D.C. Circuit which held that a regulation requiring President Nixon to make his presidential papers accessible to the National Archives was a per se physical taking of his uh, papers. And the 11th Circuit has held that a, a rule that mandated electric utilities to grant cable companies access to their phone telephone poles was a per se taking of capacity on their uh, utility pole networks. Now, the physics of electronic networks make them seem different, but conceptually, the same type of physical invasion is occurring here. Communication on wires isn't some metaphysical act. It involves real particles, electrons or, pro or photons, that physically travel along either copper wires or fiber optic tubes. And these electrons are very small, they move very fast, and you can't really see them with the naked eye. But ultimately, the, the invasion of Verizon's network by these foreign electrons is no different in principle than the invasion of Nolan's backyard by beachgoers. And indeed, if you read the dissent in Loretto, Justice Blackman makes this point almost exactly. Now, courts have occasionally discussed this principle in the related context of cable must carry law. The 1992 Cable Act requires cable companies to uh, grant access to local broadcasters. So if you're the local ABC affiliate here in Boston, at the risk of simplification, you have a right to go to every cable company and require them to carry your signal on one of their channels and specifically on the channel that lines up with whatever your uh, channel number is over the air. Uh, the cable companies challenge this largely on First Amendment grounds, saying this sort of interferes with our ability to say what we want on our network. And they lost that in a series of decisions called Turner. Uh, but Justice O'Connor mentioned in passing that there's a Fifth Amendment claim here, too, that she really wished that the cable companies had pressed forward, as do I. Uh, fast forward 10 years, and the FCC promulgated a rule that required broadcasters to switch from analog to digital broadcasting. Now, what this meant is uh, when you send out your signal over a digital signal, it means that you can send the same information using uh, less spectrum. And so this made it possible for the local ABC affiliate, for example, to send not only the signal they've always sent, the ABC signal on Rivers 5.1, uh, but also to send ancillary uh, signals as well. 5.2, 5.3, 5.4, these are sort of the high-def channels that you get if you get one of those converter boxes that the government was hawking. Um, and if you get over-the-air signals, you may have seen these. One of them is usually a 24-hour uh, weather station. One of them runs like you know, public uh, domain movies and things like that. Uh, they're just other channels that are now being sent out over the same signal. And so the question came up whether the FCC ought to make a rule requiring cable companies to carry all of these signals instead of just the primary signal that was mandated by the must-carry laws. And Larry Tribe over at Harvard argued no, that this would be a forced physical invasion of the cable network uh, by third-party providers under Loretto. 
or at the very least, Tribe argued, uh, this presents a serious constitutional question which the FCC can't adopt without explicit permission from Congress. Now, we never got a court ruling on this because the agency itself was convinced by the argument uh, and didn't go forward with the rule. But even if you're not convinced, it's worth noting that broadband providers don't need an airtight takings claim in order to defeat net neutrality as it currently exists. It's sufficient that the regulation raises a serious constitutional question such that Congress should grant explicit regulatory approval before the agency should be permitted to proceed. The deference that courts normally accord under Chevron is inapplicable, the courts have said, where the, the regulation in question raises a serious constitutional question. The argument is that if the agency is exercising authority at the very edge of Congress's power, then the court requires a clear statement that Congress intended for it to do so. They weren't just going to defer to the agency itself. This canon carries particular importance when we're talking about the takings clause, where a successful claim is not just at the edge of Congress's power, but requires the opening of the purse strings of government to a successful claimant. Uh, the power to spend is something that Congress guards very carefully. Uh, and so if an agency regulation threatens to violate the takings clause and open the purse strings of government to a claimant, the court will strike down the regulation unless Congress has explicitly authorized the agency to do so. The D.C. Circuit explained this in the mid-1990s in the context of a rule that required phone companies to open their networks to competitors. Uh, and the same rationale plays out here. The FCC right now is promulgating net neutrality rules without explicit congressional authority. Congress has debated several net neutrality bills. They've been up and down since about 2002, but they never passed one. And in fact, after the Comcast decision, there's serious questions about whether the FCC can uh, proceed to regulate broadband providers at all. Uh, questions that the net neutrality regulations right now don't answer very well. Uh, so because of the serious constitutional questions raised by the takings clause, I'd argue, especially given the First Amendment issues and the jurisdictional questions that were raised by Comcast, I'd suggest strongly that the FCC abandon its current efforts to uh, enact net neutrality rules on its own uh, and instead seek explicit congressional authority before moving forward uh, because it's going to get struck down again if it continues to freelance at the edge of its sort of Title I authority. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.